This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa Podcast. We are joined now by Michael Cohen. He is the host of the Mayor Culpa Podcast. He's a principal with Crisis X, and he has walked us through so many of these issues here. Welcome back. Good to see you, Ari. You hear that type of criticism. That was about a search on you. Now the search has hit home in a big way for Donald Trump. What is he doing here? Did he misplay this? And what would be in his safe? Well, he definitively misplayed it. It's definitely karma boomerang. He didn't believe anything that he was saying about me. It wasn't about me. It's always about him. And that's what he now has to contend with. So it's funny that you asked me about what was in the safe. Today, I probably received about two dozen plus phone calls from journalists asking, what do you think was in the safe? And I think everybody should sort of stop and let's just allow the process process to go forward. Pass the popcorn, kids, because this movie is just starting to get good. All anyone can talk about is the FBI finally arriving at Marilardo's doorstep. It was inevitable, but they didn't really raid the place. They carefully combed through looking for classified documents that Trump had refused to hand over. They had previously collected 15 boxes of documents he was not authorized to take. Then they came for the rest. Or so the story goes, but they didn't toss his place. They didn't drag him out half naked in the middle of the night. No, they came, they took 12 more boxes of evidence, and they left. Yeah, so they broke into his safe. They still didn't make any sort of scene, but Trump sure did. Of course he fucking made a scene. Has there ever been a bigger fundraising opportunity than falsely claiming that after constant harassment, your political opponents have used the FBI to raid your beautiful home? No, never. It's a fucking cash cow, and Trump is going to ride it all the way to the bank. To me, it's very personal email. It says, Lawrence, the radical left is corrupt. This is your chance to stand with President Trump. Please rush in a donation immediately to publicly stand with President Trump against this never-ending witch hunt. Plus, Trump has his civil war to foment. Perfect opportunity to get the violent insurrectionist wing of MAGA locked, loaded, and ready to go. And last week, Fox News didn't want anything to do with Trump, but now their fake news machine is working overtime, churning out gems like this. This is an abomination. This is Gestapo crap. It's probably the worst day in the history of the FBI. This is a wake-up call for those in Congress to be able to use the tools at their disposal to defund the FBI, dismantle the FBI into a thousand bits. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene simply tweeting, defund the FBI. If this is what they're able to do to the former president of the United States, think about what they could do to you, to anybody in America. The real target of this investigation isn't Trump. The real target of this investigation is you. Do we have a dual justice system in America? Is there equal justice under the law? I am deathly afraid for Donald Trump. I would not put assassination behind these people. We're entering a basically a Venezuelan, Zimbabwean, East German style banana republic in which the law doesn't matter. This is some third world bullshit right here. Let me say it again, third world bullshit. But just as sure as the sun rises, Trump has already started to spin a yarn, claiming that the FBI, while all alone in Mar-a-Lago, planted evidence that they will somehow use against him. Check out this Trump Truth Social post that's trying to be a tweet. Donald Trump writing on Truth Social today, quote, 
Everyone was asked to leave the premises. They wanted to be left alone without any witnesses to see what they were doing, taking, or hopefully not, planting. Quite honestly, I'm concerned that they may have planted something. You know, at this point, who knows? We know they well, doctor Jesse, evidence. We know they yeah. plant evidence. Yeah. Do I know that the boxes of material they took from Mar-a-Lago, that they won't put things in those boxes to entrap him? How do we know? His Ultimately, lawyers said they down. brought in backpacks. What, what, what was in those backpacks? Was, were, did they bring those in to fill them up, or did they have something in there? So let's face it. They must have found something Donald didn't want them to find. Otherwise, he'd tell us what they've taken. The law requires the FBI to give Trump an inventory on what they found. If he wants to claim the search was a witch hunt and that he's innocent of hiding government property in his house, which isn't really his house, it's a fucking country club, he should just release the search inventory. Simple, right? I am still all hot and bothered about that FBI raid at Mar-a-Lago. Turns out my kink is consequences. Ironically, after years of Trump and his acolytes screaming, lock her up, about Hillary Clinton's mishandling of White House classified information, in 2018, he stiffened the penalty for removal or retention of classified documents from one year to five years and turned it into a felony offense. But even Donald Trump's own rules don't apply to, yeah, Donald Trump. So there are five people taking the Fifth Amendment. Like you see on the mob, right? You see the mob takes the fifth. If you're innocent, why are you taking the Fifth Amendment? I don't know. You tell us, you guilty bitch. I once asked if you're innocent, why are you taking the fifth? Now I know the answer to that question, Trump said in a statement after declining to answer a single question and taking nothing but the fifth for six hours during his testimony Wednesday in a New York civil investigation against his business by the Attorney General. I know, so many Trump investigations and lawsuits in so little time. And honestly, you know, I'm amazed that Trump has time for all of this crime. Like at any moment, at any moment, Trump's got a crime that he's covering up, he's got a crime that he's doing now, he's got a crime that he's plotting for the future. He's like the Steve Harvey, but of crimes, you know? But this particular case brought by the New York Attorney General, Tish James, is a lawsuit against the Trump Organization for alleged tax evasion and making false statements. James already has her case. She's just trying to connect the players to the game, so to speak. James detailed evidence claiming that the Trump Organization used fraudulent or misleading asset valuations to obtain loans or other economic benefits. You fucking bet they did, and Trump knew all about it. Nothing goes on in Trump land without Trump's knowledge, and I know this firsthand. Nothing. Early this morning on Truth Social, former President Trump called James racist and said her investigation continues the greatest witch hunt in U.S. history. But Trump didn't talk for several reasons. First, he's busy pretending that this case in New York against his business is somehow related to the raid on Mar-a-Lardo. It isn't. Number two, Trump hates Tish James, but doesn't want to tangle with her in some sort of war of words that might corner him into admitting anything. And third, Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg may have put his case on ice, but if Trump says something that either contradicts earlier statements or can be used as evidence against him, Bragg might just get off his ass and grow a pair, which is what it would take for Bragg to reopen his case. 
Mark Pomerantz, who quit the district attorney's office when Prague dropped the case, has this to say about it. I think it was a case that should have been brought. I believe that Donald Trump, in fact, was guilty and that there was sufficient evidence as a matter of law to have sustained a guilty verdict if we went forward. They slandered him. They belittled him. You know, they went after him. They went after all of us. There's no family in American history that has taken more arrows in the back than the Trump family. Eric Trump took the fifth over 500 times when he was questioned by Tish James earlier this year. And Trump said it himself, and I'm going to quote it. You see, the mob takes the fifth. If you're innocent, why are you taking the Fifth Amendment? Just a reminder, Hillary testified for over 11 hours and never broke a sweat. And, more importantly, never took the fifth. For 40 years, everyone running for president has released their tax returns. You can go and see nearly, I think, 39, 40 years of our tax returns, but everyone has done it. We know the IRS has made clear there is no prohibition on releasing it when you're under audit. So you've got to ask yourself, why won't he release his tax returns? Quick thing about Donald's disappearing taxes. Tuesday, a federal appeals court upheld a ruling of a lower court that the IRS can finally release his tax returns to the House Ways and Means Committee. His lawyers, of course, will appeal, but then again, drip, drip, drip goes this case. And also on Tuesday, the MAGA warlord who wants to be governor of Pennsylvania, Doug Mastriano, met virtually with the January 6th committee and left without answering a single question. The whole interview didn't last 15 minutes before he threw a tantrum and quit. Mike Pompeo did a little better. Zoe Lofgren, a member of the committee, gave few details about Pompeo's testimony, but did tell CNN's Wolf Blitzer that he came in willingly and he did answer questions for quite some time. Aaron, we were told this morning that Pompeo was expected to meet with the committee today uh, virtually, so there's not a room he's going to be walking in and out of that we can track. And of course, the committee is characteristically tight-lipped about what exactly they want from Pompeo, but we know that they are interested in discussions uh, that were reported to have happened between cabinet secretaries after January 6th regarding invoking the 25th Amendment to declare then-President Trump unfit for office and essentially remove him. And Pompeo was, of course, one of the uh, most prominent cabinet secretaries as the Secretary of State at the time and uh, also a, a firm Trump ally. Uh, he is someone that they want to uh, learn more from. Strange twist? Pompeo was also a target of the Iranians who plotted to kill former Trump security advisor John Bolton. Wednesday, the DOJ brought charges against Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps for allegedly trying to orchestrate the assassination of John Bolton and Mike Pompeo for a million bucks, likely in retaliation for the January 2020 U.S. airstrikes that killed Qasem Soleimani, commander of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, while Pompeo was Secretary of State. So guys, watch out! Scott Perry was on vacation with the family when the FBI stopped by and took his phone because of his connection to the January 6th insurrection. Too bad Donald didn't float him that pardon he requested, and an Atlanta judge ordered Rudy fucking Colludi Giuliani to testify in person before a special grand jury investigating Trump's attempts to overthrow the election results in Georgia. 
He claimed his doctor wouldn't let him fly, which was utter fucking bullshit because the judge offered that he could take the train or maybe even the bus. Things like that 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 um, create this atrophy in the foundation of America will destroy America. It's like Lincoln said, we're not going to be destroyed from foreign forces coming on in. It's going to be from within if we allow things that are so anti-constitutional um, to... Um, uh, to be able to usurp, for instance, the balance of powers. And here's an update. John Stewart showed up for the president's signing of the PACT Act that he fought so vigilantly for. The president made sure to acknowledge Stewart's good work, saying the bill wouldn't be before him if it wasn't for everything he'd done. All this has led some pundits to suggest Stewart run for office since it appears he can actually get shit done in Washington. Maybe, but I think all the politics would kill him. And now for the main event. Victor Xi was the youngest elected delegate for Joe Biden in 2020. He is a former White House intern and the co-host of the iGen Politics podcast with the distinguished Jill Wine Banks. Victor is also a writer, a speaker, organizer, activist, and a third-year student at UCLA, where he is majoring in American literature and culture. Victor is currently a communications intern at Precision Strategies, and his on-air commentary and interviews have been seen on MSNBC, CNN, NBC, PBS NewsHour, ABC, The Daily Herald, and The Chicago Tribune. His op-eds have been published in Newsweek, the Boston Globe, the Chicago Tribune, CNN, USA Today, The Hill, Daily Herald, and International Business Times. I mean, this kid is fucking unstoppable. So let's go now to that conversation. Okay, so Victor, you're from Illinois and became the youngest delegate for Joe Biden. I know it's a very political state. They talk local politics on the radio all the time, and folks are fairly engaged there. But how did you get interested in politics and the Democratic Party? And how does one become a delegate? What's the process for that? Yeah, so I'll answer the first question first. And thank you so much for having me, Michael. It's great to be with you. I know this week has been um, quite a busy week regarding your uh, former client, Donald Trump. But um, in, in terms of how I got involved in politics, I I think a lot of um, the way that young people get involved and the way that I got involved was just really local. And so um, it was in the classroom and I had this one eighth grade social studies teacher. Her name was Miss Noodleman. And it was right before the 2016 Iowa caucuses. And she lectured uh, uh, just about the political spectrum and about the Iowa caucuses in 2016. And she explained, you know, you have Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton running on one side and Donald Trump running on the other side. Back then, I had no clue what I wanted to do. So I found that really interesting. And so I uh, asked more questions. I got involved. And my really first uh, political campaign was on a U.S. congressional race uh, with then uh, with, I guess, current Congressman Brad Schneider in the 10th district. And it was just one of those things where I feel like, you know, when you get involved in politics, you just feel like you're a part of a community bigger than yourself. You feel like you get to talk to voters. And it taught me a lot of different things that I really fell in love with. And so um, continued that throughout high school. And then uh, during the 2020 election, um, another teacher, uh, one of my uh, government teachers told me that as long as you turn 18 by election day, you can uh, run to become a delegate in Illinois. And so I 
tried doing it, went to a few delegate meetings and um, put my name on the ballot, gathered petition signatures, and uh, I guess the rest is history, but then became, uh, to my surprise, the youngest delegate um, for Joe Biden uh, in 2020. Well, look, Victor, I think you're a pretty interesting guy. I mean, not just are you the youngest Biden delegate, but on top of that, you're still in school, right? You're at UCLA, going to graduate in two years from now. So what, you're an entering junior? Correct. Or yeah. third year? I mean, I don't know. They, there's all these, right, they now, you're not allowed to say yeah. juniors, now you're entering third year. <laughs> but on top of that, you also have your own podcast, right? Um, which I think is called, um, I Gen, Genopolitics. Yeah. So what, it's what, is, I what, Gen- what is that? Yeah. What does that mean? So it's I Dream Politics. And the way that it happened was so I co-hosted with Jill Wine Banks, uh, who we actually met uh, while we were running to become delegates. Uh, for anyone who has uh, gone to a convention or may have um, run to become a delegate, uh, the average age, and I mean this in the nicest way possible, is just really, really old. And I remember it was my first time in one of those kind of delegate meetings right before COVID. And I saw her and I was probably the only one uh, under the age of 65. And and I remember seeing her because she was doing a lot of um, impeachment commentary at the time. And so I went up to her and we just both found it absolutely fascinating how someone as uh, young as me at the time I was 17 and she was um, in her 70s could both be supporting uh, President Biden or then candidate Biden. And so we thought of doing this podcast and uh, the whole point of it is to try to uh, bring both generations together. So someone who identifies me as a Gen Z and then she as a, um, I guess, a baby boomer, although she's technically a silent generation, uh, but she doesn't shut up is the way that she likes to put it. Um, but we both just try to make politics engaging and relevant for uh, everyone, no matter where you fall along the generational spectrum, because I think there is a lot of kind of uh, uh on the surface, a lot of differences, but once you begin those dialogues, I think it becomes a lot more engaging and relevant uh, uh, for all generations. You know, it's funny that you say that. Yes, you are definitely Gen Z. I've made mistakes, and a bunch of my listeners here on the podcast have brought it to my attention. I always refer to myself as a baby boomer. I am not, right? I, you learn something new every day. Uh, I'm 55. I am part of Gen X, so I feel much younger now. I'm actually going to go take either a nice little run in the park when we're done or I'm going to go down to the gym. You know, I feel much better now. But according to, yeah, according to Wikipedia, I had to look it up because I was certain that I was part of the baby boomers. I guess, um, you know, once again, they, they, you, know, you they get say, to learn something every day. They say 55 is the new 20, so you, you can also be Gen Z. Yeah, all right. Well, trust me, tr- trust me. <laughs> the way my back, my knees, and my ankles hurt, not a chance, right? What I wouldn't give to be back to your age. You know, it's funny. My, I remember my parents used to always say that, you know, all the time. And um, now I fully understand exactly what they mean, you know. But yeah, you are a Gen Z, and it is interesting that both you and um, you know Jill Banks um, are both interested in and supported at the time candidate Biden. If you don't mind me asking you, because, and I, and I fully understand, you probably like so many others, you know, weren't sure about Joe Biden because of the age, you held your nose, you pulled the, you know, you pulled the lever for him because you didn't want Trump, right? Um, which is basically how Trump became president. People didn't want Hillary Clinton for whatever the reason is. What was it about Joe Biden that interests you? 
Yeah. So, you know, it's so funny that you say that because I remember, um, so my uh, high school went to the Iowa caucuses in 2020 and we had the choice of either uh, going to the Biden victory night party or the Pete Buttigieg victory night party. And I was the only young person who went to uh, the Biden victory night party. Everyone else went to the Buttigieg one because he was young and people could identify with him. But really, at the end of the day, you know, I didn't support Biden because I agreed with him on all his policies. You know, I think that a lot of young people have a tendency to uh, only support or be vocal about a candidate if they agree with 100 percent of their policies. I think that's um, a dangerous model. But in 2020, I looked at President Biden and I knew that he uh, he and I didn't agree 100 percent or fully eye to eye on every policy. But I really understood kind of where the country was. It was a time when uh, just even from 2016 to 2020, you know, we went through four years of Donald Trump who tore our nation apart. Um, And President Biden really signified to me someone who was able to uh, bring the country together, someone who ran on a campaign of unity, someone who was committed on bringing Republicans and Democrats together to really heal the country after four years of um, Trump. And I really believed in that message. I thought he had... His character was, for the moment, he's someone who has experienced so much tragedy and hardship. And that's something that really resonated with me um, and kind of beyond policy. You know, he was Democrat enough where I felt comfortable supporting him. But at the end of the day, you know, in 2020, we just couldn't afford to have someone uh, like Donald Trump win again. And I thought that Joe Biden had just the best chance of winning because I thought he was uh, really the right moment, the right man for the moment and the right man for history at the time. And, um, you know, he had the right credentials. And I think he really is able to speak to people on a way that a lot of politicians aren't able to. And that's one of his strengths uh, that I thought uh, really came out during the pandemic. Yeah, look, I totally agree with you. If you listened or you read the transcript of Donald Trump's inaugural speech, it's filled with so much darkness. It's filled with so much hate. It's filled with so many lies, including his rhetoric about peaceful transfers of power. I mean, he begins by thanking, right? Think about this. He begins by thanking Barack Obama, right, for his gracious aid throughout the transition. Then he talks about today's ceremony has very special meaning because today we're not merely transferring power from one administration to another or from one party to another, but we're transferring power from Washington, D.C. and giving it back to you, the people. I really want you now, five and a half, six years later, if you look back onto it, the peaceful transfer of power was on his mind back then in 2017. How crazy is that? It's so crazy. I mean, like, I haven't watched, I can't bring myself to listening to that man again, but I haven't watched or or read that transcript. But the fact that you say that, I mean, it's shocking. I mean, this man is... It's just so dark. I remember, um, you know, I think you used the word carnage and it was just so cynical. And it's an, it's his entire presidency. Uh, those four years was exactly that tone. And I think everything was building up to the moment of uh, January 6th. And that to me was one of the most um, I just hoped it was a 9-11 moment. But as you see, um, it's not. And I think that speaks volumes about the country. But I mean, that man, uh, it speaks volumes to why he can't remain uh, in power and why he should never hold office again, I think. 
Yeah, I think it's true, right? I mean, he talks about uh, the same thing, you know, at the center of his movement is a crucial conviction Mm -hmm. that a nation exists to serve its citizens. Americans want great schools for their children, safe neighborhoods for their families, great jobs for themselves. These are just, you know, um, and reasonable demands of righteous people and a righteous public. But for too many of our citizens, a different reality exists. And he goes on and on to talk about how drugs have stolen too many lives robbed our country the person who's robbing our country is donald j trump his children and his inner circle that's the truth i mean it's really it's amazing how if you read the transcript and i certainly recommend that people do Mm -hmm. read the transcript and just think about how things actually became reality and how opposite the reality is to his inaugural speech. You know, mm-hmm. th- as a result of all of the lies and all of the illegalities and the plethora of cases that are now criminal cases pending against Trump and his inner circle, I actually had to travel to Italy. And I posted it on my on my Facebook not too long ago. On July 27th, I was at the Trevi Fountain, which, you know, it's like this 18th century fountain that has a belief attached to it that if you throw a coin in and you make a wish, that the wish will come true. Now, this is true. July 27th, I made a wish that Donald Trump would be held accountable for his dirty deeds and soon. And lo and behold, you saw what's going on right now, the raid on mar lardo right? Uh, and, you know, the fact that, and by the way, I know it's Mar-a-Largo, but because he lives there and he's a fat piece of shit, we call it Mar-a-Lardo on Mea Culpa. Just, <laughs> just so that you, just so that you know, and you don't think that I'm stupid. Right. But at the <laughs> end, at, at the end of the day, <laughs> well, I appreciate that. So, you know, they raid Mar-a-Lardo. This is after the government already took or he turned over 15 boxes. So they took about another dozen boxes. Now, of course, you know what Trump does. He lies about everything. The same way he lied when it happened to me. And he claimed that the FBI mm-hmm. knocked down the doors. They ransacked my home, my hotel uh, room that I was staying at, uh, that they ransacked my law office. None of it was true. And, you know, I went on my Twitter account in order to debunk his bullshit. And I stated that they were professional. They were courteous and they were respectful. They were there to do their job. They had a warrant while very different than with Trump's, where I can assure you that that document was heavily scrutinized. My mag- The magistrate in my case rubber stamped it based upon the prosecutors. It was like 400 pages or whatever it was. It was a lot, several hundred pages. And it was provided to him on a Sunday at 9.30 p.m., to read and to sign for an execution to take place at 7 a.m. the next morning. And I promise you, this guy did not read a single line. I'm sure the prosecutors told him about it. He rubber-stamped it. Not in this case. Not when you're going to raid the property. And it's not his home, despite what he likes to say, you know, because it's Mm -hmm. a big, gigantic former estate of um, Marjorie Merriweather Post, one of the most magnificent buildings. It's not. It's a club. It's a social club that people are paying like $300,000 as a bond in order to be a member. They actually own interest in that property. So how he calls it his home, I don't know. Just another one of the lies. But I can assure you that this document was heavily scrutinized 
and everything and every action taken by our law enforcement, the FBI and so on, was done to the letter of the law. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned that you went to Italy. I'm actually going to Italy. So I just finished my summer uh, internship going back to Chicago, where I'm originally from, and my parents and I were going on a vacation to Italy. So I'm going to have to stop at the same fountain and make another wish. Uh, and hopefully we can uh, get even more accountability. But, you know, one of the things that's fascinated me most about. Okay. Just so you know, by the way, I threw in, yeah. I threw in Victor, I threw in a one euro coin. So you need to throw in a one euro coin also. Don't be oh, cheap okay. and go for like the 50 <laughs> pence or whatever it might be. Right. Though probably, you know, that that would have been the right thing. So I made two two wishes. You got to throw in the one euro coin. The one euro. Okay. I will do that. And then I will post, I will send you the video uh, of me doing that. Um, but you know, one of the things that's been so fascinating to me, I mean, just also just so sad and depressing is just the fall. I mean, what Republicans have been saying after the raid. I mean, it is one of Marjorie Taylor Greene calling, you know, defunding the FBI and and these people who, you know, I, I just never want to hear again that it's it's Democrats who want to defund the police. I mean, these are people who, after the January 6th uh, uh, insurrection, uh, attacked police officers. Now they're defunding the police. I mean, these are people who just fundamentally don't uh, back the blue as they claim. And they, there's all this, you know, talk about, well, uh, you know, if it can happen to Donald Trump, it can happen to you. I mean, that's the point of uh, what what happened is that the rule of law applies to everyone, no matter who it is. And, um, you know, I, I just hope that enough people can can wake up and, and realize that, you know, Donald Trump poses a th- serious threat and accountability is uh, uh, approaching. Yeah, well, you know, I have a book that's going to be announced um, very, very soon and uh, available, mm-hmm. you know, everywhere for pre-order. And it's basically the premise, which is the weaponization of the Justice Department against a citizen by right. a narcissistic sociopath who's sitting in the White House. It's funny yeah. that everything he's talking about, oh, if it could happen to Donald Trump, it could happen to you. No, no, that's a, if it if it happened to me. It could happen yeah. to you, right? Because Donald Trump was the power. And when you have somebody like a willing and complicit, you know, another piece of shit, Bill Barr, right? That's the problem. That's when you have someone who's trying to destroy the Constitution and your First Amendment and basically remanding you back to prison simply because, well, I'll let you read the book and then you'll tell me what you think. But I do want to ask you because Sounds I want good. to go back for a quick sec to your podcast. Um What's the focus of your podcast? Yeah, so it's, it's called I. So at first it was called intergenerational politics, and then we changed. So we got bought by Politicon, which is a great uh, podcast producing company, and we renamed it to I Gen Politics. So like, imagine if you have an iPhone, the I is uh, lowercase and the G is uh, uppercase, and then Gen. Uh, but the whole point is to uh, ask questions from both my generation, Gen Z, and Jill's generation, and we have on guests. So it's once a week. We release it every Wednesday, and uh, we just try to have on guests who range from journalists young activists, uh, elected officials, and just try to ask questions from both our generations. Because at the end of the day, kind of going back to what I said earlier, uh, I think there is real substance to trying to uh, uh, bring both generations to the table, try to bring a multi-generational approach. And so that way, every generation feels like they're interested, engaged, and um, feel like politics is relevant to their lives. Okay. So Vic, you and I agree that young people are the future of the Democratic Party and our best hope in November. I talk about it a lot on Mayor Culpa. I do really believe that young people are the future of this country. 
So what strategies have you and other young political activists employed or plan to employ to get people to the polls in November? Yeah. You know, I try to use so, Maya Culpa as that platform. What are you doing? Yeah, you know, I, I I love the podcast medium that you're using. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's just you have to look at where young people are consuming their information. And one of the things that um, I remember, so I started off in organizing on campaigns. And one of the things that they always tell you as an organizer is you have to meet people where they are. And a lot of that traditionally applies to just voters and meeting voters physically where they are. So churches, schools, um, just people where people gather physically. But Gen Z is unique in the sense that I think over 97% of Gen Zers use at least one social media platform. So whether it be Instagram, TikTok, uh, Facebook, Twitter, although Facebook isn't really a uh, social media that a lot of Gen Zers use these days, but we are heavily online and that's where you meet Gen Zers. And so you're seeing a lot of young activists take to different social media platforms like TikTok, like Twitch, different streaming services, and really changing the way that young people are consuming information. And that's, I think, what you're seeing a lot of from uh, also the Democratic Party. It's slowly and perhaps not at the rate that I would like to see it happen, but you're seeing a lot of candidates like back then uh, in 2020 and John uh, John Ossoff and Reverend Warnock, they really revolutionized the way that uh, Georgians, uh, young Georgians were able to consume their information and uh, learn about candidates. They went to TikTok, they went to Twitch, they went to all these non-traditional streaming platforms and really uh, conveyed the political message to them. On the other hand, I think it's also uh, knowing how to create uh, informative yet engaging uh, videos. And that's, I think, the challenge to reaching young voters because young people, our attention span is waning. Uh, we don't have much capacity to, to, to consume all the information. So you're seeing a lot of much, a lot more punchier, a lot more innovative, creative ways to, to reach young voters. And I think that's going to be key. Um, but at the, at the end of the day, kind of meeting young people where they are and that happens online spaces because, uh, that's where we are. And over 97% of us are, are on those spaces now. Yeah. And you're not wrong, by the way, the Democratic Party, and I'm very critical of Jamie Harrison and the DNC. They, mm -hmm. in my mm -hmm. estimation, are not doing what we need as Democrats in order to ensure enough people come out, vote in November. And then, of course, for the general election, we are 90 days approximately yeah. oh. out of the November election. I'll be honest with you. The second that Trump's Marilardo was raided, they're already out there raising money. Yeah. Already, you know, I, I subscribe to that shit just so that I can see how fucked up the guy actually is and how mm -hmm. crazy this group of, you know, of grifters are around him. They're yeah. raising millions of dollars off of, you know, what Republicans are claiming are the illegal, unconstitutional raiding of the former president's home. I mean, Everything about that line is a lie from the yeah. fact it's not his home to the fact that it was not an illegal raid and so on, right? The ransacking, all of the words that they use. What are we doing as the Democrats? We're sitting back and we're basically allowing them to shoot themselves in the foot and hoping that we get the benefit from it. And I don't understand this. I believe that folks like yourself and so many other Gen Z, you know, um, people who I've been speaking to both on this podcast as well as uh, outside of this, you know, medium that I keep saying, what can we do? What can we do in order mm -hmm. to bring these people? I don't want to meet them on TikTok, even though I'm on it. And I did this uh, TikTok video the other day where I was like, knock, knock. 
Who's there? The fucking <laughs> FBI, Donald. That's who, right? It's got like half a million plus views on my TikTok. And I think I've added like another 30,000, you know, followers. I'm still nowhere near Kardashians. But my point <laughs> is what we need to do is we need to physically be there because you have to physically be at the polls. This yes. isn't like you can go on an app and vote, you know, through your right. handheld device. You have to physically go. And I truly believe that if we could put people together, I don't know if it's a march on, you know, in, in DC, it's everybody getting together in the mall for just a, a rally. Uh, instead of it like a CPAC, we do a DPAC, something like that. Mm. But we have to get organized. We have to get together. I need to be able to look you in the face and explain and say, you know, Victor, here's why your your presence is so relevant. Here's why you need to tell five friends and you need to take those five friends to the poll and make sure that they vote straight down the line Democrat because we're going to lose our country. And if democracy isn't important enough for you to get up on time to go to the polls, maybe, you know, maybe America's not for you. Mm-hmm. I okay, I totally couldn't agree with you more, Michael. And I think that's one of the things, just coming back to what you just said, one of the things that Republicans are so good at doing is sticking to a message. And you see, starting from when Trump ran for office, I mean, a lot of the same messages when he ran for office, they're still using now, make America great again. You know, illegal, country, illegal, illegal immigrants are coming after your lives, the them versus us narrative. They're sticking to that message. And that's what keeps voters and uh, their base engaged is that they always have this fear and they're the Republicans are so effective at running on that fear. And I think Democrats, you know, we have the goods. We have so much that's happened in this administration from historic infrastructure to now the Inflation Reduction Act, which includes climate change, which a lot of young people care about. Job uh, growth. Has, job growth, unemployment rate is down. I mean, all of these things are huge things things that Democrats should be running the hell out of um, and and selling to voters. And at the end of the day, I think what you say is so important. A lot of it comes down to relational organizing. So you have to, you know, to your audience, you know, find some people in your life and get them to the polls, right? Midterm elections are typically when we see lower turnout rates because people just don't find it as urgent as presidential elections. But this is one of the most, I, maybe not one of the, the most consequential and, uh, 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 significant midterm elections in history, right? If we allow Republicans to win the House and the Senate, President Biden, uh, his agenda becomes completely blocked and they're going to open all of these investigations into people like Merrick Garland and Anthony Fauci and everyone. It's going to be a shit show for the next uh, two years. And we need to get all of our folks out to the polls. And that starts by having conversations. You know, we have 90 days. If you can find one person in your life between now and Election Day, either get them registered to vote or tell them, you know, Go out into the polls. Let's go together. Uh, that's what I think is going to be really important. It starts local. It starts by having these conversations. And I think that becomes much more doable for your average voter is by starting small and reaching out to your network of friends. And then that becomes like a ripple effect. And then you get your network of friends to reach out to their network of friends. And I think that's going to be key as we head into the uh, midterm election. So you make such a good point, Michael. Yeah, well, look, uh, you're at one person to take to the poll. I say grab five right? Grab Mm -hmm. your parents, Mm -hmm. you know, you, you know, grab your best friend and, and, and maybe, you know, your, you know, um, your partner, right? Just five people. If everyone that we, that I've spoken to grab five, there would be no election, right? In November that the Democrats wouldn't be able to take. But on that same subject, 
What are the issues that, in your opinion, of course, will get your generation to the poll? Now, obviously, Roe versus Wade abortion right at the very, very yes. top of that. And probably guns and climate, you know, which is what you were just talking about. Look, I've read a lot of crap um, when it comes to uh, what's going on with cl- with the climate control and so on. Now, we're talking 15 years. They're saying that Miami, Florida is going to be underwater. If that's not yeah, enough no. to scare the shit out of people to the polls, again, I don't know what to say to you. There's something seriously wrong with you. But what other issues are key to young people, to Gen Zs like yourself? You know, will canceling student debt, for instance, you know, get young people out to vote? I mean, is it really that big of an issue for them? And really, how political is your generation at this time? Yeah. So in terms of the issues, I think you hit on a lot of them. And, and the thing that makes Gen Z unique in the sense that uh, for what we care about is that there are just so many things that are uh, wrong with our lives. And that makes, you know, there, there really is no uh, three, like top two, top three solution um, problems for every single Gen Z. But in, just in general, uh, based off of the polling, based off the conversations I've had, you nailed, you nailed it right on the head. So the top three include things like climate change. I mean, th- this is something that's going to impact all of our lives, but especially young people who are going to have to deal with the repercussions of uh, a lot of elected officials and their failure to act on climate change. Um, the next is gun violence, right? We have to go through gun shooter drills on a constant basis in high schools. Um, I remember in Illinois, where I'm from, we had to go through two per semester. So that involved uh, someone going through the intercom and saying, now prepare for a soft lockdown and uh, get in a place where you can hide and not see the window. And that's scary for a lot of young people. We are part of a generation that sees you know, shooters coming to schools and that's really scary. So gun reform, gun violence is really important. Uh, abortion rights. Uh, that's something that I think a lot of people, especially um, after Dobbs, were wondering whether or not that would be the key issue that would turn young people out to vote. And you saw that with Kansas, right? Registration rates among young people skyrocketed. Uh, a lot of young people turn out to vote in Kansas uh, on the abortion question specifically, because that's the right that a lot of young, or I guess every single Gen Zer grew up with. And we saw that right literally taken away from our own eyes uh, by this Republican Supreme Court. So that and all the other rights at stake are really important. And at the end of the day, also the cost of education. There are so many young people now in college who see uh, college tuition skyrocketing. It's not getting any better. It's getting more expensive every year. That makes our lives harder. We have to do more in order to pay off college debt, in order to uh, even go to college. And that's an immediate issue. But you also have a lot of other issues, just like the cost of healthcare, accessing healthcare, uh, our wages uh, as young people going out into the world, finding a livable wage uh, that meets the demands of where we're living. So all of these things are impacting young people. Uh, And I think in terms of how many young people are engaged in politics, that's always a tricky question because you have a lot of young people who are really tuned in, right? You think of your kind of David Hoggs, you think of your uh, Greta Thunbergs of the world who are leading mass movements, who are really engaged. But on the other hand, you have a lot of people who are just completely tapped out of politics, who couldn't care less, who find politics uh, completely cynical. I'm thinking, for instance, you know, you saw perfectly this this dichotomy with the Amber Heard and Johnny Depp trial. So many young people tuned into that trial. But when you look at the January 6th hearings, over 20 million people tuned in uh, via just cable news networks. And, and now you can factor in other streaming platforms. Over 20 million people tuned into the first uh, round of hearings, the primetime ones. 
of those 20 million, only one, a fewer than 1 million people were under the age of 35. Young people just don't really care about those things. And it's about how to reach them. And I think that's the biggest challenge for the Democratic Party. And that's going back to one of the things that you were talking about. The Democratic Party has to talk to young people and say, look, this is what we've done. This is how we're going to impact your life. And then also make the choice on the other side clear, right? If you don't vote for us, this is what's going to happen. Your abortion rights are going to be taken away. No one's going to act on climate change. Uh, School is going to be less safe. I mean, make this really immediate for young people, because otherwise, I just don't think that those segment of young people who are completely tapped out are going to care unless you make it really urgent and really immediate. And this is, again, why I attacked the DNC. Could you imagine if I was Jamie Harrison, if I was running the DNC, I'll tell you what I would do. I would have Joe Biden sit at the Oval Office and talk about his granddaughter, to talk about his grand his grandsons, to talk about your children, to talk about your generation. And I would say, let me sort of explain something to you. Let me be the grandfather that I am, all right? Mm-hmm. So every single day, just about, or every month, we're beginning to see another natural disaster, whether it's going to be a forest fire, whether it's another hurricane, typhoon, another flooding in another town. It's costing us billions every time there's a natural disaster, Right, Every single time, it's billions. And the numbers now that they throw out are staggering. Yeah, it's going to be $11 billion to, um, you know, to now go into Louisiana. It's going to be $15 billion in Kentucky. It's going to be X, Y, and Z. Well, here's the problem with that, Victor. Right, No one's actually talking to your generation and how it impacts you. No matter how much money that you think you can earn coming out of school, you cannot make enough money to help to offset the amount of money the insurance company is going to be pulling from you, right? And I'm not talking health coverage now. I'm talking about your liability. If you're going to go buy a house, where do you think that they're getting the money in order to pay for the disasters? Where's the country going to get the money? From your taxes? So, of course, everything's going to have to go up. And worse than that, could you imagine if you take all the natural disasters that take place, I don't know, let's give it a three-month period, right, in the first quarter, and you took those billions and you invested it into infrastructure into this country, to education, to paying off student debt, right, if they did it uh, for something that would benefit the next generation coming up. Could you imagine how much better off this country would be? We're just churning water as we go along every day. You know, every day that there's not a natural disaster, that there's not going to be more billions taken out of the coffers of the U.S. Treasury, right? They're basically, oh, thank God. Thank God for that one, right? Now we can, Mm -hmm. you know, we can do it with the money that we, you know, that for something else. But that, of course, never happens because the following day, there's another natural disaster that comes about. So, and look, I, and a serious question. Is there a Trump or a MAGA fan base amongst young people that you know of, right? Like at UCLA, is there a contingent of young Republicans putting out leaflets, you know, for, I don't know, the upside of burning books, right? Matt Gates for president sort of bullshit banners or what have you. But Really, are there a lot of educated young Republican activists out there? And if so, what's their platform? Yeah. 
You know, there is. And it's funny that you mentioned UCLA. Herschel Walker's son goes to UCLA, although I think he dropped out recently. He claimed that he was attacked all of the time and that uh, UCLA students are out to get him. But no, there is a really, really big contingent uh, of, of young people on college campuses who identify as Republicans. And that's something that, you know, groups like Turning Point USA and Prager University have really done a good job of mobilizing that generation. And the problem is that, you know, you mentioned what policy platforms they support. And when you ask them, they really have no substantive policy platforms. A lot of it is just playing off of, again, what Donald Trump and Republicans were able to do in 2016, which is tap into fear. And that is you see a lot of Republicans on college campuses who are 99 percent white or majority white because they buy into that narrative of they are coming after us and that there is a population of people who are going to replace us. And that's, I think, what the scariest part. You know, I think a lot of college Republicans are fed these lies by people like Tucker Carlson and Candace Owens and Ben Shapiro and people who frankly look like them. You know, there is a, there are a lot of people who are young Republicans out there, millennials doing the work to mobilize young people. And, you know, young Republicans find that relatable. And uh, when you ask them, you know, why do you support them? They have nothing. And that's honestly indicative of a lot of Republicans these days is, you know, they support the Republican movement. They claim to, to be a part of the Trump MAGA movement. But once you start asking them what policies they support and why they support them and give me some statistics and hard evidence for why what you say would work, they have nothing. And so, you know, it, it's it's always hard. And I don't know how reachable those Turning Point USA uh, young people are, but they exist. And, um, you know, you saw at CPAC, there are a lot of young people who lined up to get Marjorie Taylor Greene's signature and who uh, wanted to see Donald Trump and Mike Pence speak. And there, there are a lot of them. And, and honestly, I don't know if I have the solution for how you reach them, because uh, they are really, really passionate and they really listen to people like Candace Owens and Ben Shapiro and the whole Turning Point group. Yeah. It's, and it's really it's scary to be very honest. Yeah. It's scary. And what bothers me is that once again, we don't provide them with the counterpoints, right? And I right. think that it's extremely important. In Biden's first year, accomplishments. Just talk about yeah. his accomplishments and how that will benefit your Gen Z. I can't imagine that there is a single Republican Gen Z female out there. We've already seen what's happened to Roe v. Wade. You yeah. were spot on when you said that they're taking away something that you've grown up with, right? What's going to happen with o um, Obergefell when they get, when they do the same thing with same mm -hmm. um, sex marriage? I mean, everybody knows somebody who's gay, right? Your generation, unlike, of course, you know the older generation that still some, you know, they have hangups. There's no hangups anymore. Right. Mm -hmm. We've actually grown or at least we were growing. Now, you, then you have after you have the interracial marriage. They're going to do the same thing yes. with that, yes. too. And, and so and these are all things that you never thought about. And, you know, yeah. you weren't supposed to, because, again, we've grown as a society. We've grown as America. And now yeah. we're going backwards. But you talk about jobs, right? Biden's first year is the greatest year of job creation in American history. That's yeah. not a Donald Trump. That's not a Donald Trump accomplishment. That's a Joe Biden accomplishment. And it's a fact. The unemployment rate, right? It's, it's under, it's under 4%. It's like 3.7, 3.8, whatever. You know, it's, it's also fantastic. It dropped from 6.2. 
right? Uh, when Biden took office to like 3.8, 3.9, unemployment claims, the same thing, the lowest in, you know, in since 1969. I mean, what, look at the, the number of economic legislation that's been passed, right? With child poverty, you know, they're expecting it to be the lowest rate uh, ever, you know, um, expanded health care, reduced hunger, you know, I mean, there's all this of climate investments, as you brought up, clean water, cleaner cars, the use of wind for energy. I mean, come on. Right. And then we have also under Biden, the single most diverse administration yes. in U.S. history. How is this not enough to impress upon your generation, Gen Zers, that the Democratic Party, whether you agree, and look, I, I happen to think Joe Biden is a wonderful man. I really do. I just think he's too old for the job, mm. right? I, I, I do, and I'm sorry to say, you know, I would like to see somebody in their 50s, somebody- I agree, I agree, yeah. Who has more energy. I think it's enough already with all the octogenarians, one mm -hmm. running against the other. Mm -hmm. it, mm -hmm. I think we need, we need like a Zelensky, that's really what we need. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I think he's a wonderful man, empathetic, kind. You know, he's doing an incredible, incredible job. I just personally wish he was 30 years younger. Right. Now, let me ask you this. Yeah, let me ask you this, Victor, because I know you can't speak for your entire age group. But what do what does your age group think of Joe Biden? Right. I mean, I know I have my, you know, my personal opinions. And again, I just yeah. stated them. Why are his numbers so low? They're so bad when he's actually been able to accomplish so much, like I was just talking about. And would you like to see him? Would you personally like to see him run again in 2024? Yeah. So I'll answer the first part of the question first. So uh, you are starting to see a lot of young people lose trust in Democrats and also President Biden. That's one of the most kind of fascinating, but also concerning things. So I, this summer, I um, interned at the White House and it's something to, I think, view the White House and what happens in the administration from the outside, but really be inside. You get a different perspective because like you said, it's one of the most diverse generations. You walk around the hallways and, you know, I just think back to the one photo of the Trump intern class where it was literally all white people except one person. And that almost makes it worse because that person was tokenized as someone who could just, you know, they, they say I hired one black intern, but it was all white people in the Trump administration. You have this diverse administration who is honestly doing really, really amazing stuff. Like you said, all those accomplishments are really substantial and really tangible. And to anyone who works in the administration, they know how historic and consequential this administration is. So then the problem is, why aren't young people uh, agreeing with this administration? Why aren't young people supporting this administration? I think it becomes really tricky. On one hand, I think young people have this tendency to really fall into the instant gratification mode. So a lot of young people want to see things happen immediately. We want to see results happen, for instance, for instance, on something like eliminating student debt. We won't settle for something like we only eliminate half of your student debt. We want all of it eliminated. Or on climate change, we don't want something that is just half-baked. We want something that is all the way. So something that like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Bernie Sanders uh, might propose with a Green New Deal, something that really pushes the envelope really far. And so I think a lot of young people just really feel like what things, uh, what uh, I guess how things are happening in the federal government just move too slow. There is enough urgency and that things aren't happening as quick as we like. And so I think what 
becomes the challenge for now President Biden and Democrats is how do you sell that message to uh, young people? And I think they're really smart in terms of how they're doing it. So I honestly don't think that President Biden is the most effective messenger uh, for young people. I think he can tap into some young people and really understand our struggles, understand our pain, because at the end of the day, he is kind of like you said, that grandparent figure, that person who can really comfort people. But what I think is going to be key for Democrats in terms of how to tap into young people and really show young people that this administration is uh, caring about young people and acting on our needs is by recruiting a lot of young activists and young celebrities. And we saw that with, for example, uh, in the spring, they brought in uh, someone like Olivia Rodrigo, who is this TikTok young, what young person sensation who reaches young people uh, in an instant just by her Instagram story or Instagram post. You also saw them bring in uh, unconventional people like a K-pop, a Korean pop uh, band called BTS. And that was really revolutionary because they are people who have a large young uh, base who follow them wherever they go. And if you can somehow get young people to be the messenger to other young people, then I think it becomes a lot more relatable. So hopefully Democrats will do more of that uh, as they head into the 2022 midterm elections. And in terms of whether or not I want to see President Biden run again, look, you know, I think it's a tricky thing because I don't I agree with you. <laughs> I, I agree with you. I, that don't. I, I definitely think that he's too old and age is going to be a really big problem and turnoff. On the other hand, I don't know, I, I I might pump that question back to you. If Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis or any other Republican runs again, does any other Democrat stand a chance? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think there yeah. are a multitude of Democrats that are out there that yeah. would not just give them a run for their money, but would whip their asses in a mm -hmm. general election. It doesn't mm -hmm. help that any of these, whether it's Ron DeSantis or as we like to call him, Maya Culpa, Death Santis. I mean, the things that he's <laughs> doing in yeah. Florida, you know, look, if you have money in Florida, Ron DeSantis is your guy, right? Yeah. If you're struggling like so many Americans are, he's not. But, you know, you said something that I got to give you a little pushback on here, Victor. Yeah. All right. You know, um, your generation, I totally agree. Yeah, I, I like to call you guys like the Googlers, right? Where you get the answer that you want in an in instant of a second. Hmm. I get it that, you know, you don't want half of student debt to be paid. You want it all to be paid. And you're not looking for climate change to take 15, 20 years. You want it done instantly. You know, there's that famous Chinese proverb, right? That goes, the journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. I right. don't believe your generation right. fully understands that. You're not entitled in this country to free education. I paid for my education. And mm -hmm. I believe that mm -hmm. anybody, you know, older than the Gen Zers believes the same thing. And if you can get half of your education paid for, right, wouldn't you turn around and say better something than nothing? Right, right. now, do I believe education should be free? Absolutely. I believe that, you know, that there's schools like Harvard that have endowments that they don't ever have to take another dollar from any of their students ever. And, you know, to keep the place running uh, the way that it's running. Do I think that we need to be able to compete in the international education market? Absolutely. And I, I still do believe that the brightest of the bright do get these full ride scholarships. But then again, you know, not everybody can be valedictorian. That's only set for one person. But again, you know, it goes right back to that whole proverb. A journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. I would like to see like what's happening right now under the administration. 
There's a five-year plan. There's a 10-year plan. There's a 15-year plan. The damage we have done to this earth is so significant. There is no overnight panacea. It just doesn't yeah. exist. Yeah. And while I would like it to be, you know, a Google fix, right? You just type something in and boom, everything changes. That's not reality. And we really do need to live in reality because reality is coming. More floods, more hurricanes, more, you know, destruction, more forest fires. You know, I mean, and it's, it's coming in this, unless we do something to stop it, you know, we're, we're just destroying the only home that we have, you know, meaning planet Earth. But I want to touch on something for a second, Victor. Yeah. You wrote a recent article, and I congratulate you on it, uh, in the Chicago Tribune saying that the January 6th committee should show and not tell the truth about the insurrection. If you do me this, do me the favor, explain to my audience what you mean by that. And further, how effective do you think that the January 6th hearings have been so far as it relates to your generation, to Gen Z? Mm -hmm. So uh, what I mean by showing and not telling is uh, I remember I watched the first two impeachment trials. And one of the things that really stuck out to me was that, you know, if anyone were to watch it, they would have come to the conclusion that Donald Trump committed an offense or was a criminal and should be held uh, uh, accountable for his actions. But the problem was that there was a lot of telling. So there was a lot of substance, but they just didn't really pierce through with your average voter because no one on one hand uh, spends five hours or six hours of their day watching test testimonies uh, in front of uh, Congress. They don't, you know, as amazing as I thought Fiona Hill and Colonel Vindman were, they spent so long testifying and, and people have really short attention spans. And so if you listen to the whole thing, you could come to the conclusion and say that, yes, Donald Trump broke a law and he should uh, never be president again. But most people don't do that. So I think what was really interesting about the January 6th hearings this time around and to anyone who watched it, I think it's an undeniable fact that they really put a lot of time into the production of how they ran the January 6th hearing. So you saw them bring in, for instance, a former ABC executive who helped them interweave all of these elements into one really cohesive uh, narrative. You saw during the hearings, they led with one primetime hearing at night when everyone, when not everyone, when more people would watch, they ended with a primetime hearing and the hearings throughout never really went past two hours. And they, they had not all live testimony. They had some pre-recorded testimony, some live testimony. And what that allowed them to do was interweave all these uh, people throughout the narrative arc of uh, what Donald Trump did both before, on, and after January 6th. And so I thought that they were really effective in terms of showing people what happened. They were really able to keep people on their seats and make it visceral for anyone who watches and just understands how it feels, right? I just think back to that one uh, simulation that they showed of the West Wing and and the the point of view of Trump looking at Fox News and watching Fox News as the whole January 6th hearings were happening. I mean, you could really put yourselves in the shoes of Trump and say, would any reasonable person who watches this uh, do anything about it? And most people would do something about it. Most people wouldn't just be sitting there for hours and uh, watching Fox News. Uh, and so I thought they really did an effective job of making it a story, making it a narrative. And it felt at times like a show, right? You have uh, these few hearings and then there's a month long break and the next and the next hearing is season two. And so I think a lot of it is set up in a way to speak to people like me, people who are young and who may not care about politics. And so uh, to address your second question, you know, sadly, 
I'm not sure how many young people are paying attention to January 6th, which is the whole reason why I even um, felt compelled to write the piece, because I, I remember the conversations of my friends and uh, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard and all of these other hearings, and they paid attention. They watched. They found it fascinating. But there's something about the January 6th hearings and maybe just politics that people don't really tune into. And so my proposal in the piece was, you know, you you have the infrastructure to make this something that reaches to my generation. Everything is engaging. Everything keeps you on your seat. So now it's finding the ways to amplify them. So I propose something like, you know, uh, the January 6th committee should really go to TikTok and create short and engaging uh, videos. Uh, 97% of young people get their information from uh, social media or go on different streaming platforms like YouTube and uh, Twitch and other streaming platforms where young people watch uh, uh, TV shows and movies and really make that apparent to young people. So finding at the end of the day where young people consume information, I think is going to be key in terms of how the January 6th committee is able to pierce through my generation, because we know it's piercing through people who are into politics, maybe even moderate Republicans, um, but it's not really doing a great job of reaching my generation. Yeah. So let me ask you this then. What's your take on Andrew Yang and this new forward party that they started? Because I think it's he and um, David Jolly who yep. started it. But it reminds yep. me, and again, because I'm older than you, so I remember some of the shit. It reminds yep. me a whole lot of something that could turn into a spoiler situation, like yes. um, what happened with Jill Stein or Ralph Nader. Do you see a future for the forward party? And further, do you think there is a necessity for a serious third party? Um, so I don't know how, well, I'll try to be as honest as I can. I honestly think the forward party has no future. I mean, no one who watches or sees Andrew Yang, I think takes him to be a serious candidate. I mean, there were a lot of young people who supported Andrew Yang and, you know, who were part of what they called the Yang gang back then. But it really was because he was one, a pretty, you know, amusing character. Two, because he supported this one idea called universal basic income. And there was nothing else that young people could point to as to why they supported Andrew Yang. I mean, he was this, you know, goofy guy and people just don't take him seriously. I mean, you see Andrew Yang and people get turned off by him. I mean, honestly, it's, it's, it's not a very appealing person to have leading a political party. Um, on the other hand, I don't, I, I don't think that the Ford party is, um, something that is, even if it wasn't Andrew Yang leading, I don't think it's a viable option. You know, we lived through uh, 2016. We saw what happened. You know, if Gary Johnson and Jill Stein didn't run, could that have made the difference for Hillary Clinton? You know, we knew that we knew that Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. I haven't digged too deep into the numbers to see whether or not it would have made a difference in the Electoral College. But could those seven million people who voted for Jill Stein and Gary Johnson end up making making a difference for who ended up winning in the Electoral College? I think maybe um, now I am willing to change my thesis if, if I'm proven wrong, but I think we see what happens when third parties run. And I think, honestly, it strengthens the argument for why we shouldn't have third parties now, because if we detract from, you know, we have a party that is clearly for autocracy, a party that is white nationalist, a party that is completely unhinged, and we have a party that is sane. And once you introduce a third party, sure, you introduce choice and you introduce another option for people. But it detracts from the real end game, which is to bring a coalition of voters who believe in the fundamental idea of democracy. And I think that's 
where we all have to find ourselves. We have to support the Democratic Party, not in the sense that we have to agree with everything that they say, but we have to agree on the fundamental notion of supporting democracy. And I think we all have to be united on that and around that notion. And I think that just that starts by really supporting the Democratic Party and opposing the Republican Party. And who knows, maybe there'll be a future for the Ford Party or some other third party. But I think now is just not the time. This is the time where we have to unite around one idea of supporting the Democratic Party and, and opposing this Republican Party that is becoming increasingly unhinged and uh, uh, baseless in everything that they say. You know, it's funny that you Andrew Yang is like the guy that I'm looking for in terms of age, right? This is a guy that I would have liked to have seen come out with something other than this idiotic UBI, right? This universal basic yeah. income ideology. Yeah. You ask him anything. Well, what do you think about Roe versus Wade? Well, UBI, right? Everyone's going to be getting $1,000, 12000 a year. And so you'll be able to afford, you know, um, you know, medical health care. And you sit there. This is why they keep going back to the, yeah, you know, as we, yeah. as we like to say in Yiddish, the altakakers, right? Yeah. The, the older people, right? This is, this is why this fucking idiot comes up with this. Does he not understand that as of today, as of 2022, no country has implemented UBI, a truly yeah. universal, right? Basic income model. There's not a country in the world. What makes him think that we should turn around and take America and make it into the, you know, into the test model? It's so stupid. First of all, the amount isn't enough. That's the problem. You know, we're talking about, you know, we're talking that thousand dollars wouldn't even affect the amount of money that you would have to pay for your education. I mean, Mm -hmm. the whole thing is just Mm -hmm. so stupid. Couldn't he, because he's not a dumb guy, couldn't he have come up with something a lot better than UBI? And he's the reason why they keep defaulting back to the, you know, to the, you know, the octogenarian. It's just, it's so stupid. I was so angry. And every time I watched him, you're right. I looked at him as a clown, right? So let me ask you this, right? Because- Again, you know, I'm impressed with, you know, in school, you're doing all this, you have the podcast, you have, you know, um, your political views and so on. You have political ambitions yourself because you certainly understand the process. But now more than ever, you know, politics is mean. And if MAGA really takes hold, politics in this country might even get dangerous. Yeah. So what do you see for, in your future as far as politics is concerned? Yeah, so I honestly don't know if I would run for office. I think, like you said, it's becoming a really polarizing environment. And to the point where if you run for office, you, I mean, not that I couldn't take the attacks that come at me if I were to run for office, but it's that we're reaching a point where everyone who is around you becomes attacked and everyone who is around you, their lives are threatened. And that's one of the most dangerous parts about running for office now, if you're a Democrat and if you have MAGA people oppose you, is that no one is safe. And that I don't think I could handle. Um, but I would love to be a part of campaigns and have a kind of, you know, because I, I think I understand how the process works and and I appreciate um, what happens behind the scenes. And so I'd love to have as many roles as I can behind the scenes on the campaign, whether it's in communications or managing a campaign. And honestly, I think right now, one of the things that Jill and I talk most about is this information, information ecosystem that we're now living in, where so much 
misinformation and disinformation is prevailing. You have lies just being thrown around constantly. And so having some role to play, that's why, you know, I think your podcast is so important. That's why I think podcasts are such a great way for people to consume information now, because it goes beyond those short snippets and you get a lot of nuance and you get to hear these conversations and people talking to each other like they would in a conversation. And that's refreshing in this environment. And I think podcasts are a really great way. And so I'd love to kind of stay up in terms of, you know, how do we reach people? How do we get facts out there? And that's something that I'd love to do. Um, but in terms of, you know, running for office, I don't know if there's any political ambition on that end, but um, hopefully having some part to do with a campaign and hopefully staying involved. I love writing. So, um, you know, I, I've done a lot of op-eds and hopefully can continue writing op-eds on just this, the the urgency of this of this moment and why young people need to be taken uh, seriously and why Democrats need to be doing better in terms of reaching out to young voters and persuading us uh, to vote for them. Well, look, my hope is that you actually do. And I'm going to tell you the reason why. And maybe mm-hmm. you'll just keep this in the back of your head. Yeah, yeah. it's getting dangerous. There's no doubt mm-hmm. about that. Right. Um, the visceral reaction to comments that the Republicans are making that Donald Trump makes and the and the hatred that's uh, existing between the parties so it, it it is getting dangerous and as things become worse and worse but just go back to Abraham Lincoln could you imagine if you know with his ideology he would turn around and say well you know um things are a yeah. little bit contentious right now you know maybe i really shouldn't run it's dangerous and obviously we all know what happened with him but look at the legacy that you know that he left he waged a political struggle and a civil war that preserved this country right could you imagine right um he ended slavery the 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 south wanted to they wanted to kill him right the the north Mm -hmm. wanted to protect Mm -hmm. him you know he was taking away their bread and butter the free labor i mean he basically single-handedly created the possibility of civil and social freedoms for african-americans and for all minorities and he changed the the whole the whole ideology of america maybe you too could be that person you know maybe you know it's something that i would hope that you would keep in the back of your mind because it is your generation that has to fix this country so that Mm -hmm. i could die in Mm -hmm. peace you know but speaking about Speaking about that, lastly, because, you know, the yeah. hour goes by quickly here, Maya Culp. Oh, my gosh. Yes. What do you see, right? What do you see for the United States? If you were to predict our future as a nation, what do you what do you think? Does the democracy hold or do we go down this authoritarian path, right? What do you think that the United States looks like when you hit my age? So, I mean, right now, it, it's it's one of the things that, is most depressing to me is that, you know, I honestly don't know. And, you know, you saw this with COVID, you saw this, you know, even now after January 6th, how many people are unwilling to meet the demands of the moment and to confront the challenges that we face as our country, right? There are so many things, and we talked a lot about this on this podcast, there are so many things that in any other lifetime would be something that could unite the country. Something like January 6th could have been a 9-11 moment. Something like COVID could have been a moment where we all came together to get vaccinated mm-hmm. and help each other. But you have this segment of the population that is totally detached from reality, that won't accept fact, that can't discern fact from fiction. So that concerns me right now. But I think what we're starting to see and what I think makes me optimistic about the future 
is I think in 50 years, when I become uh, an old man, I think we're going to look back, and I think you have a lot of okay, young let, people let, who let are- me begin. Let me let me stop you for one second. First of all, I'm 55. <laughs> I'm about 30 years, uh, 33 years or so, 34 years older than you, not 70. So, okay, keep going. Apologize. <laughs> Sorry, 30 years uh, from now. There you I go. <laughs> so 30 years from now, when I when about you know, 50 years old, I think I'm going to look back and I think a lot of young people are changing the conversation. So we're making, we're trying to shift the narrative. And I think a lot of young people are just changing the way that we see things. And I think in 30 years, we're going to look back on this administration. Sure, things right now aren't very great. And there's a lot of polarization and half of the population will never be content with what President Biden does, no matter how good it is. Um, And I'd argue maybe even the same is true for uh, Democrats in terms of how they view Republicans. I don't think uh, half of the t- population is going to be content with any Republican who runs. But I think in 30 years, we will see a change and hopefully we'll see a change in the sense that people will come to agree with facts. I think we're in this really bad moment, but we're starting to see a little bit more people not support the MAGA movement. Um, he's, you know, Trump still has a grip on the party, but you saw this with January 6th. Every single witness was a Republican. And they were able to find the light. And I think as long as we slowly push information out there that is fact-driven, that we get people who are once Republicans to talk to Republicans, we get Democrats to talk to moderates and have those conversations, that's how I think we start to build the foundation of a democracy that we want, where everyone is united and we start to give people the light that they need to come out of the darkness that so many people are in. And so... Hopefully, in 30 years, we'll be in more of a fact-based, reality-based reality, and we'll look back on what's happening now and say, look, I mean, it's it was really historic, really consequential. And what President Biden, what Democrats were able to do in this time is nothing but historic and amazing. And so um, as long as we keep on having those, you, you know, we mentioned just get five people out to vote, start local. If we can have those conversations with people who are fed lies, who are in this darkness and give them a little bit of the truth slowly, maybe that's just the way that we can get to a place where we all want to be in a, in a world where we all want to live in. Well, Victor Sheaf, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, you're a remarkable young man. Take some of the advice from an older man, right? You know, don't don't rule out politics. Uh, right. The country needs you and keep doing what you're doing. And I thank you for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me, Michael. Be well, my friend. And now for this week's Mayor Culpa. This week, I wanted to talk about professional golf and the problems the guys who defected from the PGA to the Saudi-backed Live Golf Club are now experiencing. They're being excluded from playing in the FedEx Cup for a whole bunch of reasons. But then I thought, it's golf. There shouldn't be any problems with golf. Golf is one of the greatest sports in the world, and I don't want to see it tainted by money, politics, or personalities. I just want to like it. It's like it's like ice cream. I want to eat and enjoy ice cream. I don't want to think about the calories or the sugar or anything that makes it bad because ice cream is a beautiful thing. So why fight it? And it's easy to start seeing everything as a fight when you spend so much time in and around politics as I do. But did you see that picture in the paper or online of the two young men at the Little League World Series from opposite teams hugging? A terrible moment exposed the humanity in these two kids 
when Tuesday during the Southwest Regional Championship game between Texas and Oklahoma, an Oklahoma hitter got nailed in the head by a fastball dealt by the Texas pitcher, and he, then he went down. The pitcher appeared to hit him in the ear flap and knocked his helmet straight off his head. The hitter got up after a few days' moments, shook it off, and headed for first base before calling a timeout. He then walked over to the pitcher, who was clearly struggling after hitting his opponent in the head, and they hugged it out. Before you knew it, kids from both teams are out on the mound, slapping the pitcher on the back, like, it's okay, we all make mistakes, let's play ball. Now, as anyone knows who frequents high-stakes Little League games, and I certainly did because my son was a pitcher, this moment could just as easily have turned into a bench-clearing brawl, but not last Tuesday. Last Tuesday, something good happened that renews my faith in kids and sports and maybe even America. And it reminds me that in every moment, we have a choice. How are we going to meet it? Are you going to fight or are you going to lean into it, what's good, and embrace it? Today, I'm choosing to lean into this warm mid-August heat and embrace the good. And I hope that you're doing the same. And thanks for listening. Maya Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. Written by Jimmy Jelinek and Paula Killen. Our editor and managing producer is Lisa Orkin. Our executive producers are Jared Gustad, Jimmy Jelinek, and myself, Michael Cohen, along with Phil Alberstadt. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is still winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, I promise you, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth. This is my mea.